useless as it is high DB Spitzer. Welcome back. Thank you again for joining us as we shimmy through the alleys and squeeze through cracks and walls. Just to hear a bit of detective story. This month is not detective stories. It's it's not weird fiction. It's it's economic science fiction. It's 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 uh it's how do we describe this? Well, it's the cosmic computer. Thank you for joining us. Join us all month long as we continue with this story. And of course, we also have Radio Free Oleander. People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. Not to forget about Articulate Warbly, our friends across the pond, who have much more convincing accents than I do. Thank you for listening, and please enjoy. They had come to the mesa in the Badlands and dug a pit on top of it a thousand feet in diameter, and more than five hundred deep. And in it they built a duplicate of the headquarters for Third Fleet Army Force Command. They built a shaft a hundred feet in diameter, like a chimney at one side, and they ran a tunnel out through solid rock to the head of a canyon half a mile away. Then they buried the whole thing. Twelve years later, when the war was over, They sealed both entrances and went away and left it. For a month each winter, cold rains from the east lashed the desert. For the rest of the year, it was swept by wind-blown sand. Wire grass sprouted, and thornbush grew. Nature, the master camoufleur, completed the work of hiding the forgotten headquarters. Little things, not unlike rabbits, scampered over it, and bigger things, vaguely fox-like, hunted them. Hunted men came, too, their air cars skimming low. None of them had the least idea what was underneath. The mesa top came suddenly to life, just as the sun edged up out of the east. Khan and his father and Aunt Dawes came in first, in the recon car with which they had scouted and photographed the site a few days before. They circled at a thousand feet, fired a smoke bomb, and then let down near where Khan's map showed the head of the vertical shaft. The rest followed. First, a couple of combat cars that circled slowly, scanning the ground, and then the Lester Dawes with her big guns and her load of equipment. And behind, a queue of boats and scows and heavy engineering equipment on contragravity, and troop carriers full of workmen and guards, flanked by air cavalry, which circled above while everything else landed, then scattered out over a fifty-mile radius. Occasionally there was a hammer of machine guns, either because somebody saw something on the ground that might need shooting at, or simply because it was a beautiful morning to make a noise. The ship settled quickly and daintily, while Khan and Ants and Rodney Maxwell sat in the car and watched. Immediately she began opening like a beetle bursting from its shell, large sections of armor swinging outward. Except for the bridge and gun turrets, almost the whole ship could be opened. 
She had been designed to land in the middle of a battle, and deliver ammunition when seconds could mean the difference between life and death. Jeeps and lifters and manipulators and things floated out of her. Scows began landing and unloading prefabbed elements. A water tank landed, and the cookshed began going up beside it. A lorry came in with scanning and probing equipment, and a couple of men jumped off and huddled over a photoprint copy of one of Khan's maps. Khan lifted the car again and coasted it a half-mile to where the cleft in the mesa started. There were half a dozen claw-armed manipulators already there, and two giant power shovels. Jerry Revis and one of the engineers Kurt Fawzi had hired had gotten out of a jeep and were looking at another photoprint of the map. Revis pointed to the head of the canyon, where a mass of rock had slid down. That's it. You can still see where they put off the shots. The canyon was long enough and wide enough for the Lester Dawes to land in it. She could be loaded directly from the tunnel. The manipulators began moving in, wrestling with the larger chunks of rock and dragging or carrying them away. Power shovels began grunting and clanking and rumbling. Dust rose in a thick column. Toward mid-morning, the troop carriers which served as school buses in Litchfield arrived, loaded with more workmen. A lorry lettered Storacenda Herald Guardian came in, hovered over the canyon, and began transmitting audiovisuals. More newsfolk put in an appearance. The earth and rock at the top of the tunnel entrance fell away, revealing the vitrified stone lintel. Everybody cheered and dug harder. More air cars arrived, getting in each other's and everybody else's way. Raymond Fitch, Lester Dawes, Lorenzo Menardis, and Morgan Gatworth, Dolph Kelton playing hooky from school, Tom Brangwen with a score of the Home Guard to reinforce the company police. Clem Zeriff called in his air cavalry to help control the sightseers. Nobody was making trouble. They were just getting in the way. At eleven, Rodney Maxwell went aboard the Lester Dawes to use the radio and telescreen equipment. By then, two time zones west in Storsenda, the claims office was opening. He filed preliminary claim to an underground installation, with at least two entrances in uninhabited country, and claimed a ten-mile radius around it. By that time, the gang working on top had uncovered a vitrified slab over the hundred-foot circle of the vertical shaft, and were cracking it with explosives. According to the scanners, it was full of loose rubble for a hundred feet down. Below that, the micro-rays hit something impenetrable. Toward mid-afternoon, the tunnel in the canyon was cleared. It had been vitrified solid. The scanners reported that it was plugged for ten feet. A contragravity tank let down in front of it, with a solenoid jackhammer mounted where the gun should have been, and began pounding, running a hole in for a blast shot. There were more explosives topside. When Khan took a jeep up to observe progress there, he found the vitrified rock blown completely off the vertical shaft, exposing the rubble that had been dumped into it. The gang on the mesa top had discovered something else, a grid of aro-copper bus bars buried four feet underground. 
10 to 1, radio and telescreen signals would be transmitted to that from below, then probably picked up and rebroadcast from a relay station on one or another of the high buttes in the neighborhood. Time enough to look for that later. He returned to the canyon, where the lateral tunnel was now almost completely open. When it was clear, they sent a snooper in first. It was a robot, looking slightly like a short-tailed tadpole, six feet long by three feet at the thickest. It transmitted a view of the tunnel as it went slowly in. The air, it found, was breathable, and there were no harmful radiations or other dangers. According to the plans, there should be a big room at the other end, slightly curved, a hundred feet wide by a hundred on either side of the main tunnel entrance. The robot entered this, and in its headlight they could see reconnaissance cars and contragravity tanks with 90-millimeter guns. It swerved slightly to the left, and then the screen stopped receiving. The telemeter's instruments went dead, and the robot's signal stopped. Tom, Rodney Maxwell said, you keep the crowd back. Clem, stay with the screens. I'll transmit to you. I'm going in to see what's wrong. He started to give Khan an argument when he wanted to accompany him. No, Khan said, I'm going along. What do you think I went to Terra to study robotics for? His father snapped on the screen and pickup of the jeep that was standing nearby. You getting it, Clem? he asked. Okay, Khan, let's go. Half a mile ahead, at the other end of the tunnel, they could see a flicker of light that grew brighter as they advanced. The snooper still had its light on and was moving about. Once they caught a momentary signal from it. As Rodney Maxwell piloted the jeep, Khan kept talking to Clem Zareff outside. Then they were at the end of the tunnel and entering the room ahead. It was full of vehicles, like the one on the bottom level at 10th Army HQ. As soon as they were inside, Clem Zareff's voice in the radio stopped, as though the set had been shot out. Clem, what's wrong? We aren't getting you, his father was saying. The snooper was drifting aimlessly about, avoiding the parked vehicles. Khan used the manual control to set it down and deactivate it, then got out and went to examine it. Take the jeep over to the tunnel entrance, he told his father. Move out into the tunnel a few feet. Relay from me to Clem. The jeep moved over. A moment later, his father cried, He's getting me. I'm getting him. What's the matter with the radio in here? The snooper's all right, isn't it? It was. Khan reactivated it and put it up above the tops of the vehicles. Sure, we just can't transmit out. But only a half mile of rock. That set's good for more than that. I'll transmit clear through Snagtooth. It won't transmit through Collapsium. His father swore disgustedly, repeating it to Zareph outside. Khan could hear the old soldier in the radio make a similar remark. They should have all expected that in the first place. If the Third Force High Command was expecting to sit out a nuclear bombardment in this place, they'd armor it against anything. 
"'Bring the gang in. It's safe as far as we've gotten,' his father said. "'We'll just have to string wires out.'" Khan used his flashlight and found the power unit for the room lights. All the overhead lights were wired to one unit. If wired were the word for gold-leaf circuits cemented to the walls and covered with insulating paint. For the heavy stuff, like the ventilator fans, they'd have to find the central power plant. He looked around the big room, poking into some of the closets that lined it. Radiation-proof clothing, tools, arms and ammunition, first aid kits, emergency rations, all the vehicles were plated in shimmering collapsium. The crowd started coming in. The work gang selected for the first exploration work, most of them old hands of Rodney Maxwell's. The engineers they had recruited. Mohammed Matsui, he had a gang of his own, the same one he had been using in tearing down the converter at Tenth Army. The stockholders and officials, the press and everybody else Tom Brangwen's police hadn't been able to keep out. The power plant was at the extreme bottom. Matsui began looking it over at once. Above it they found the service facilities air and water plant, pumps for the artesian well, sewage disposal, then repair ships and a laboratory, and laundries and kitchens above that. Where do you suppose it is? Kurt Fawzi was asking. Up at the very top, I suppose. Let's go up and work down. I can't wait till we've found it. Like a kid on Christmas Eve, Khan thought. And there was no Santa Claus, and Christmas had been abolished. The place was built in concentric circles, level above level. Combat equipment nearest the tunnel exit and nearest the vertical shaft and ambulances and decontamination units and equipment for relief and rebuilding next. Storerooms, mile on circular mile of them. Not the hasty, pack-rat cramming he'd seen at Tenth Army. Everything had been brought in in order, carefully piled or racked, and then left. More stores for the next three levels up. Then living quarters. Enlisted men's and women's quarters, no sign of occupancy. Enlisted kitchens and mess halls, untouched. Most of the officers' quarters were similarly unused, but here and there some had been occupied. A sloppily made bed, a used cake of soap in the bathroom, an empty bottle in a closet. Officers' commissary stores had been used from and replaced. The officers' mess hall and kitchen had been in constant use, and the officers' club had a comfortably scuffed and lived-in look. There had been a few people there all the time of the war. Men and women, all officers or civilians, Clemzarev said, didn't even have enlisted men to cook for them. And we haven't found a scrap of paper with writing on it, or an inch of recorded sound tape or audiovisual film. Remember those big wire baskets down at the mass energy converters? Before they left, they disintegrated every scrap of writing or recording. This is where Merlin is. They were the people who worked with it. And above, offices, general staff, war planning with an incredibly complex star map of the theater of war. Judge Advocate General, 
Inspector General, Service of Supply. They were full of computers, each one firing the hopes of people like Fozzie and Dolph Kelton and Judge Ledoux. But they were only special-purpose machines, the sort to be found in any big business office. The stores and the stock exchange probably had bigger ones. Then they found big ones, rank on rank of cabinets, long consoles studded with lights and buttons, programming machines. It's Merlin, Fozzie almost screamed. We found it. One of the reporters who had been following them snatched his radio handphone from his belt and jabbered. Then, realizing that the collapsium shielding kept him from getting out with it, he replaced it and bolted away. Hold it! Khan yelled at the others, who were also becoming hysterical. Wait till I take a look at this thing. They managed to calm themselves. After all, he should know what it was. Wasn't that why he'd gone to school on Terra? They followed him from machine to machine, first hopefully, and then fearfully. Finally, he turned shaking his head and feeling like the doctor in a film show, telling the family that there's no hope for Grandpa. This is not Merlin. This is the personnel file machine. It's taped for the records and data of every man and woman in the Third Force for the whole war. It's like the student record machine at the university. Might have known it. This section in here's marked G1 all over everything. That's personnel. Wouldn't have Merlin in here, Clem Zaroff was saying. Well, we'll just keep on hunting for it till we do find it, Kurt Fawzi said. It's here somewhere. It has to be. The next level up was much smaller. Here were the officers of the top echelons of the Force Command staff. They, unlike the ones below, had been used. From them, too, Every scrap of writing or film or record tape had vanished. Finally, they entered the private office of Force General Fox Travis. It had not only been used, it was in disorder. Ashtrays full, many of the forty-year-old cigarette ends lipstick-tinted, chairs shoved around at random, three bottles on the desk with Terran bourbon labels, Two empty, and one with about an inch of whiskey left in it, but no glasses. That bothered Khan. Somehow he couldn't quite picture the commander and staff of the Third Fleet Army Force passing bottles around and drinking from the neck. Then he noticed the wall across the room was strangely scarred and scratched. Dropping his eye to the floor under it, he caught the twinkle of broken glass. They had gathered here and talked for a long time. Then they had risen for a final toast, and when it was drunk, they had hurled their glasses against the wall and smashed them. Then they had gone out, leaving the broken glass and the empty bottles, knowing that they would never return. Chapter 8 before they returned to the lower level into which the lateral tunnel entered, Matsui and his gang had the power plant going. The ventilator fans were humming softly, and whenever they pressed a starting button, the escalators began to move. 
They got the pumps going, and the oxygen generators, and the sewage disposal system. Until the communication center could be checked and the relay station found, they ran a cable out to the Lester Dawes, landed in the canyon, and used her screen and radio equipment. Before the claims office and store Ascenda closed, Rodney Maxwell had transmitted in recorded views of the interior, and enough of a final description for a final claim. They also received teleprint copies of the store Ascenda papers. The first story, in an extra edition of the Herald Guardian, was headlined, Merlin Found! That would have been the reporter who bolted off prematurely when they first saw the personnel record machines. Khan wondered if he still had a job. A later edition corrected this, but was full of extravagant accounts of what had been discovered. Merlin or no Merlin, Force Command Duplicate was the biggest abandoned property discovery since the Third Force left the Tri-System. The camp they had set up on top of the Mesa was used that night only by Clem Zareff's guards. Everybody else was inside, eating cold rations when hungry, and, when they could keep awake no longer, bedding down on piles of blankets, or going up to the barracks rooms above. The next day they found the relay station which rebroadcast signals from the buried aerial, or, wouldn't one say, subterial, on top of the mesa. As Khan had expected, it was on top of a high butte three and a half miles to the south, it had been so skillfully camouflaged that none of the outlaw bands who roamed the Badlands had found it. After that, Force Command Duplicate was in communication with the rest of Poitem. They moved into the staff headquarters at the top. Fox Travis's office, tidied up, became the headquarters for the company officials and chief supervisors. The workmen quartered themselves in the enlisted barracks, helping themselves liberally to anything they found. The crowds of sightseers kept swarming in, giving Tom Brangwen's police plenty to do. Tom himself turned the marshal's office in Litchfield over to his chief deputy. Clem Zareff insisted on more men for his guard force. A dozen gunboats, 80-foot craft mounting one 90-millimeter gun, several smaller autocannon, and one missile launcher had been found. He took them over immediately, naming them for capital ships of the old System States Navy. It took some argument to dissuade him from repainting all of them black and green. He kept them all in the air, with a swarm of smaller airboats and combat cars circling the underground headquarters at a radius of a hundred miles. These patrols reported a general exodus from the region. At least a dozen outlaw bands all with fast contragravity, had been camped inside the zone. Some fled at once. The rest needed only a few warning shots to send them away. Other bands, looking like legitimate prospecting parties, began to filter into the Badlands. Zareff came to Rodney Maxwell, instead of Kurt Fawzi, the titular head of the company, which was significant, to find out what policy regarding them would be. Well... We have no right to keep them out, as long as they stay outside our ten-mile radius, Khan's father said. And, as we're the only thing that even looks like law around here, I'd say we have an obligation to give them protection. Have your boats investigate them. If they're legitimate, 
Tell them they can count on us for help if they need it. Khan protested privately. There's a lot of stuff around here, in small caches, he said. Equipment for guerrilla companies in event of invasion. When work slacks off here, we could pick that stuff up. Khan, there's an old stock market maxim. A bear can make money sometimes, and a bull can make money sometimes, but in the long run, a hog always loses. Let the other people find some of this. It'll all help the plan. Fact is, I've been thinking of leaking some information, if I can do it without Fozzie and that gang finding out. Do you know a good supply depot or something like that, say, over on a care, or on the West Coast, big enough to be important and to start a second prospectus rush away from us? How about one of the hospitals? No, not a hospital. We might use them to talk Wade Lucas into joining us. A lot of medical stores would be good bait for him. I'm afraid he's going to make trouble if we don't do something about him. Well, how about engineering and construction equipment? I know where there's a lot of that, down to the southwest. That's farming country. That stuff will be useful down there. I'll do that. The next morning, Rodney Maxwell scorched the stratosphere to store Senda in his recon car. The day after he got back, there was a big discovery of engineering equipment to the southwest, and, as he had anticipated, a second rush of prospectors. They had the vertical shaft clear now, and the Lester Dawes was shuttling back and forth between Force Command Duplicate and Storsenda. Other ships were coming in now, mostly privately owned freighting ships. They bought almost anything as fast as it came out. The stock market had been paralyzed for a couple of days after the discovery of Force Command. Nobody seemed to know what to sell and what to hold. Now it was going perfectly insane. Twenty or thirty new companies were being formed. Unlike Litchfield Exploration and Salvage, they were all offering their stock to the public. A week after the opening of Force Command, the stock exchange reported the first half-million share day since the war. A week after that, there were two million share days in succession. Some of the L.E.N.S. stockholders who had come out on the first day began drifting back to Litchfield. Lester Dawes was the first to defect. There was nothing he could do at Force Command, and a great deal that needed his personal attention at the bank. Morgan Gatworth and Lorenzo Minardis and one or two others followed. Kurt Fawzi, however, refused to leave. Merlin was somewhere here at Force Command, he was sure of it, and he wasn't leaving till it was found. Neither were Franz Veltrin or Dolph Kelton or Judge Ledoux. Tom Brangwen resigned as town marshal. Clem Zarif was too busy even to think of Merlin. He had almost as many men under his command, and twice as much contragravity, as he had had when the System States Alliance Army had surrendered. Khan flew to Litchfield and found that the Public Works Project had come to a stop at noon of the day when Force Command was entered, and that nothing had been done on it since. The cold vitrifier was still standing in the middle of the mall, and topside Litchfield was littered in a dozen places with forsaken equipment and half-completed paving. 
There was no one in Kurt Fawzi's office in the airline's building, and the employment office was jammed with migratory workers vainly seeking jobs. He hunted up Morgan Gatworth, the lawyer. Can't some of you get things started again, he wanted to know. This place is worse than it was before they started cleaning up. Yes, I know. Gatworth walked to an open window and looked down on the littered mall. But everybody just dropped everything as soon as you opened Force Command. Kurt Fawzi's not been back here since. Well, you're here. Lester Dawes and Lorenzo Minardis are here. Why don't you just take over? Kurt Fawzi couldn't care less what you do. He's forgotten he's mayor of Litchfield. He's forgotten there is a Litchfield. Well, I don't like to just move into the mayor's office and take over. From somewhere below, a submachine gun hammered. There were yells, pistol shots, and the submachine gun hammered again, a couple of short bursts. Some of the farm tramps who can't get jobs, trying to steal something to eat, I suppose, Khan commented. Gatworth was frowning thoughtfully. He'd only need one more, very slight push. Why don't you talk to Wade Lucas? He's got brains, and he's honest. Nobody but an honest man would have made himself as unpopular as Lucas has. If you pretend to be disillusioned with this Merlin business, it might help convince him. He was blaming you and your father for what's been going on here in the last two weeks. Yes, he'd help get things straightened out. At home, he found his mother simply dazed. She was happy to see him and solicitous about his and his father's health. It seemed at times, though, as if he were somebody she had never met before. Events had gotten so far beyond her that she wasn't even trying to catch up. Flora, returning from school, stopped short when she saw him. "'Well, I hope you like what you've done,' she greeted him. "'For a start, yes.' "'For a start, you know what you've done.' "'Yes. I don't know what you think I've done, though. Tell me.' "'You've turned everything into a madhouse. You've set this whole world Merlin crazy. Look at the stock market.' You look at it. All I can see is a pack of lunatics playing Russian roulette with five chambers loaded out of six. Some of this so-called stock that's being peddled around isn't worth five millisols a share. Seekers for Merlin Limited close today at a hundred and seventy. You notice there isn't any L.E.N.S. being traded. If you don't believe me, talk to Lester Dawes. He'll tell you what we think of this market. Well, it's your fault— in part, it's my fault that any of these quarter wits have any money to play the market with. They wouldn't have money enough to play a five-cent assault slot machine if we hadn't gotten a little business started. There was just a little truth to that, too. A few woolen socks were coming out from under mattresses, and a few tin cans were being exhumed in cellars, since the new flood of Federation equipment and supplies had gotten on the market. He'd seen a freshly lettered sign on Len Yanaguchi's tailor shop. Quarter price in Federation currency. That night, however, he had one of the nightmares he used to have as a child. A dream of climbing up onto a huge machine and getting it started, and then clinging, helpless and terrified, unable to stop it as it went faster and faster toward destruction.
Clem Zeref's patrols were encountering larger outlaw bands, the result of gang mergers. They were fighting with prospecting parties, and prospecting parties were fighting one another. Much of this was making the newscasts. One battle, between two regularly chartered prospecting companies, lasted three days, with an impressive casualty list. Public demands were growing that the planetary government do something about the situation. The government was wondering what to do or how. There were indignant questions in Parliament. Finally, the government dragged a couple of armed ships off Mothball Row, a combat freighter like the Lester Dawes, and a big assault transport, and began trying to get them into commission. And, of course, the market boom was still on. The newscasts were full of that, too. He had started worrying about if a bust came. Now he was worrying about what would happen when it did. Another good reason for wanting to get to Koshai and getting a hypership built. When the bust came, he and his father would want one very badly. In any case, it was time to begin getting an expedition ready for Barathrum spaceport. Quite a few of the new companies had large contragravity craft, and the nascent planetary air navy was approaching a state of being. He wanted to get out there before anybody else did. Maybe if they got the hypership built soon enough, it would start a second, sound boom that would cushion the crash of the present speculative market when it came, as come it must. He talked to Clem Zarif about borrowing a couple of the 80-foot gunboats. Zarif's attitude was automatically negative. We mustn't weaken our defense perimeter. We'd be inviting disaster. Why, this whole country in here is simply swarming with outlaws. They fired on one of our gunboats, the werewolf, yesterday. He'd heard about that. Somebody had launched a missile from the ground, and the werewolf had detonated it with a counter-missile. It had probably been some legitimate prospecting company who'd taken the LENS craft for a pirate. And there was a battle down in the Devil's Pigpen day before yesterday. That had been outlaws. They had been annihilated by something calling itself Seekers for Merlin Limited, whose stock was still skyrocketing on the exchange. He mentioned that. These other prospecting companies are doing a lot of our outlaw fighting for us, and as long as the country's full of small independent parties, the outlaws go after them and leave us alone. Yes, and I have my doubts about a lot of these prospecting companies, and a lot of the outlaws too, Zarif said. I think a lot of them are Federation agents. They're waiting till we find Merlin, and then they'll all jump us. Well, Khan adjusted his argument to the old rebel's obsession. I'll admit that as a possibility. If so, we'll need heavier weapons than we have. This spaceport on Barathrum might be just the place to get them. Yes, it might. Defense armament and the stored ship's weapons. Say, if we grab that place and move all the heavy guns and missiles here, we could stand off anybody. The thought of a fight with minions of the Terran Federation seemed to have shaved ten years off his age in a twinkling. You take the Lester Dawes and let's say three of these gunboats. Let me see. Goblin, Fred Karski, and Vampire, Charlie Gatworth, and Dragon, Stefan Jorison. They're all good men. 
Home guard. Trained them myself. Aren't you coming, Colonel? Oh, I'd like to, Con, but I can't. I don't want to be away from here. No telling what might happen. But you keep in constant screen contact. If you get into any trouble, I'll come with everything I can put in the air. End of chapter 7 and 8